Well, um, we spent several weeks talking about what is theology and how do we study systematic theology, and then we talked about the nature of the Word of God. What is the Word of God? And uh, we talked about God's Word of decree that caused events to happen, that caused the world to be created. Then we talked about God's words of personal address where he directly spoke to the people of Israel from Mount Sinai, and they heard his voice. And then God's word in written form where he himself wrote his words on the tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments. So they were the words of God, but they were written in the Hebrew language that human beings understood. The words of God, but they're human words as well at the same time. And then we had God's words through human lips, that is, through the prophets, where God promised that he would put his words in the people's mouths. And then those prophets uh, wrote down words in Scripture. And in all these cases, the words are still words from God, and they're still words that have God's authority. Then the previous two weeks, we talked about the canon. How do we know what books belong in the Old Testament? How do we know what books belong in the New Testament? We looked through a lot of historical evidence for that. Now today, we come to the question, very, very central question, a foundational, fundamental question for the whole Christian faith, and that is the authority of Scripture, and particularly, how do we know that the Bible is God's Word? I mean, we do believe that. We, we take the Bible as God's Word, but how is it that we know that it's God's Word, and how do we, how do we come to that conviction? And if somebody asks you, in fact, I saw a list of um, 24, 23 questions that, that the producer at Focus on the Family had kind of given to me and to Dr. Dobson to kind of get ready for this interview, and one was, how can people know that the Bible is God's Word? So I'm practicing here. <laughs> um, uh, so um, this is, and this is starting uh, with the four characteristics of Scripture. Uh, number one, authority. Then we're going to talk about uh, clarity and necessity and sufficiency, other characteristics of Scripture. But we're going to spend some time on authority. This week on how do we know the Bible is God's Word. The next week uh, after Tubac, uh, so it'll be two weeks from today, we'll talk about inerrancy. And are there mistakes? Are there contradictions in the Bible? Are there errors? And uh, we'll take at least two weeks on that because I want to look at the general question and then look at some hard passages that, where people have said, hey, there's a contradiction here. And I want to look at some of those with you. Then we might take a week, I think, looking at um, uh, scholarly objections that have come from more liberal university professors and how they've objected to the idea of inerrancy and how we respond to that. Um, and then we'll go on to these other characteristics. But we start with authority. How do we know that the Bible is God's word? Well. Um, the authority of Scripture, this is a definition that we start with. The authority of Scripture means that all the words in Scripture are God's words in such a way that to disbelieve or disobey any word of Scripture is to disbelieve or disobey God. What I'm saying here is the Bible comes to us with God's authority, and we are to hear God speaking to us in it. And if we say about anything in the Bible, oh, I don't believe that, well, then we're just saying to God, God, I don't believe you. And if we say about any command in Scripture, well, I'm not going to obey that, then we're saying to God, God, I'm not going to obey you. And that's what the authority of Scripture means. So how do we get there? What's the evidence for it, and then why do we believe it? So we start out first. Here's the, my, my statement that I want to prove, is all the words in Scripture are God's words. 
how do we know that? Well, first step is, this is what the Bible claims for itself. Now, if you look on your outline there, A1, this is what the Bible claims for itself. I'm going to spend quite a bit of time on that. And then to, under number two, the second point is going to be, well, do you believe what it says? Do you believe what it claims? That is, how are we convinced of that? But before I even ask anybody, do you believe that it's God's word? I just want to say, well, let's just step back and see what it claims about itself. Just even if you, you know, for a non-Christian, I could say, well, I don't know what you think about the Bible, but could you just bear with me a few minutes and see what it says about itself? See if it claims to be God's word. And then step two is, well, now do you believe that claim? We're at step one, just looking kind of objectively about uh, at what the Bible claims about itself. So, okay, now does the Bible claim to be God's word? I'm going to look at a number of different places where, in fact, it does claim that about itself. So we have um, places where it says, um, uh, thus says the Lord. There are some places like that in the prophets, but these begin with Deuteronomy 18, where God says to Moses, I will raise up for them, for the people, a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. So here, God's promising that a prophet would come. Now, what the Jewish people did later in the Old Testament and then afterward, they looked back on this promise and they said, you know, this is the foundational promise, not just for a prophet, and of course, ultimately, I think it's fulfilled in Christ, but this is really the pattern for how God dealt with all the genuine prophets that followed Moses. That it wasn't just one, but it, with all of them, I put my words in his mouth is what God did with all of them. And then whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. That's if you don't obey it, you're not obeying God. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak or speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. So there's a very strict penalty there. And we see that in other places in the writing prophets. And these are just some examples. There could be more. The Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I've put my words in your mouth. And so there's this strong conviction that the, that the prophets have that, that God is speaking through them and that their words are not just their words, but they're God's words. Jeremiah 29, send to all the exiles, saying, Thus says the Lord concerning Shemaiah of Nehalam, because Shemaiah has prophesied to you when I did not send him, and has made you trust in a lie. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I will punish Shemaiah of Nehalam and his descendants. He shall not have anyone living among this people. He shall not see the good I will do to my people, declares the Lord, for he has spoken rebellion against the Lord. So here the Lord is saying, when people say, thus says the Lord, and, and I haven't sent them, that's a very serious thing. I take it very seriously, and I'm going to punish them for it. So that's Jeremiah. He speaks for the Lord. These other false prophets don't. Ezekiel 2.7, you shall speak my words to them, whether they hear or refuse to hear, for they are a rebellious house. So again, the prophet is speaking God's words. And then God speaks through the prophets. Um, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Ahijah the prophet. So there's the Lord spoke through the prophet. But it's the Lord speaking, which he, the Lord, spoke. 
or 2 Kings 9.36, the word of the Lord which he spoke by his servant Elijah the Tishbite. And so it's the word of the Lord, it's he, the Lord, spoke the word, but Elijah was actually using his voice to say it. And Haggai 1.12, Zerubbabel and Joshua, with the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And so uh, they're doing, by, by obeying these words, they're obeying both the voice of the Lord and the words of Haggai because the Lord's words are coming through Haggai. And uh, this is in accordance with the promise earlier, whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. So we get that, and I could have done more verses, but I would kind of bore you by, by hundreds of passages where in the Old Testament prophets you could just about open to any page and it would say, says the Lord, says the Lord, thus says the Lord. You get a lot of that in the Old Testament prophets again and again. They're reminding uh, the, the hearers that those are God's words. And then we talked when we talked about canon, how it was not just their spoken words, but uh, they actually wrote them down too because the Lord directed them to write those words down. So then we get written words. And in the New Testament, a number of passages indicate that not just this passage in Moses and not just this Jeremiah passage and not Ezekiel and not just Haggai, but, but those were representative of what the Jewish people held to be the nature of the whole Old Testament. And so we get the New Testament authors looking back on the whole Old Testament and they're saying, it's all of this character. It's all the words of God. And so 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul says, all scripture is breathed out by God. And that word scripture, we talked about this a number of uh, Sundays ago, but that, that word graphe, technical Greek word, it, it's used 51 times in the New Testament, and all 51 times it refers to Old Testament writings. So it's not just any writing, it's, script, it's what we call the Bible, the Old Testament initially here, and then others, and then New Testament writings included as well. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So he's looking back and he's saying it's all that. It's all God's word. What do you mean breathed out by God? Well, you're talking about words. And when you speak words, you have to breathe out, right? And so it's kind of a very vivid way of saying these words in scripture are spoken by God. Uh, they're breathed out by God. And, uh, and it's, it's not that Isaiah is inspired or Jeremiah is inspired. It's that the words are inspired. And if you read, there's something, there's a liberal reference set called the Interpreter's Dictionary of the Bible. And um, if you look up the article on inspiration, written by Jeffrey Lamp at Cambridge, who was the second reader on my doctoral dissertation. The first sentence of Jeffrey Lamp's article on inspiration is, he says, we must begin by recognizing that inspiration is a quality of persons, not of writings. And I figure, I disagree with you in the very first sentence. Because he's saying, oh, these human beings, David, Samuel, 
Isaiah, they were inspired. That is, they had a religious experience and they wrote it down. But the, but the inspiration belongs to the persons, not the writings, says Jeffrey Lamb. But here Paul is saying all scripture is breathed out by God. He's not saying Moses was a wonderful, insightful, religious person. He's not saying David had wonderful religious experiences and wrote them down. He's talking about the words themselves. And so, sorry, Professor Lamb, I disagree with you, but the Bible's own view of this is that, is that the God-breathed character of these words belongs to the words. It's the words themselves that are breathed out by God. And it's not just part. It's all that they counted as Scripture, and it's all the Old Testament. It's all breathed out by God, and it's all profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Now, I know we struggle sometimes when we go through those long lists of names in Numbers or Chronicles, and I know that I myself skim over those from time to time as I'm reading through. But uh, I, I look at that and I say, hey, there's some benefit from it because every four or five verses, there's a little bit of application to life where it says, and so-and-so did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and the Lord blessed him, or he disobeyed the Lord. And so there's application. And of course, all those names being recorded reminds us that throughout history, God isn't just ministering to groups in a kind of a vague way, but he's concerned about individual, specific human beings so much so that there are thousands of individual people's names in the Bible, in these words breathed out by God, so that even those places, though there isn't a lot that you want to preach from in those lists of names, it does tell us that God's interested in individual people and cares about them. All scripture is profitable for teaching, and so all the Old Testament we should be able to study and learn from, and uh, it corrects us, it trains us. And then 2 Peter 1.21, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. I'm going to try this um, board. I, I don't know if this is going to be... Can you all see that? Mark? Yeah, okay. So as they were carried along, and that Greek word looks like this. Pharaoh, P-H-E-R-O. And it's the common Greek word that you would use <clears throat> if you're going to carry something, you know, just from one place to another. And, and what Peter is saying is that this, all these Old Testament prophecies, people were speaking as they were being carried along, present, present participle. They were being carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is guiding the people as they speak to to put down, or as they write, to put down exactly what God wants them. He's directing their words. Now, we're going to get to that in a few minutes. I don't think the Holy Spirit overrode their personalities, but Peter is saying somehow there was such a, a guiding work of the Holy Spirit that, uh, that these are words of God. They were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In other passages in the New Testament, various sections of the Old Testament are referred to as God's words. So again, here's the idea that they're, they're looking back on the Old Testament and they're saying it's God's words. Matthew 1.22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And then it goes on to give an Old Testament. I've forgotten what that is in Matthew 1.22. You, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, is that? Let's look and see what that is. 
this is you, you, there are a lot of examples of this in Matthew where he shows Old Testament fulfillment. Yes. Oh, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So that's Isaiah seven fourteen being fulfilled in the events of the, of the birth of Christ. Or Matthew nineteen forty five. He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, this is very interesting, and if you have a Bible and you go back to Genesis 2.24, I want you to look there and see who the speaker is. Genesis 2.24. That's what's being quoted here. Okay, now, Genesis 2.24. Is this one of those passages where it says, Thus says the Lord, or the Lord says, or the Lord declares? Therefore, it just says, let's go back. I'll start with verse 22. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they sh shall become one flesh. Who is saying that in the narrative of Genesis? Who's the speaker? Well, I'm getting a little different answers here. Um, you're jumping ahead to the correct answer, but just if you're reading Genesis, it doesn't say God says this. It's just the narrator, isn't it? It's just, it's just Moses writing this, basically. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one foot. So and it doesn't say God says. It doesn't say the Lord says. It's just words of history. In the Old Testament, that was the point I wanted to make. But even though it doesn't say there that God says it, Jesus said, he who created them made them male and female and said, and said. So Jesus is saying, God said this historical narrative. Even this portion that doesn't say, thus says the Lord. And so those of you who are saying God said it, you're right, <clears throat> but you didn't. <clears throat> but you needed Jesus to get the answer um, because Jesus is saying that God said that. Is that making sense? Okay, so that's a high confidence even in the narrative portions of the Old Testament. Mark 7, 9 to 13, Jesus said, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die, but you say, and then it goes on. But look at this. The commandment of God is not only honor your father and your mother, which is Ten Commandments, but then these other laws that come out of uh, the later sections of Exodus and Leviticus. Whoever reviles father or mother must surely die, and Jesus calls that the command of God, too. All these Old Testament laws. Acts 1.16, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide. So, here, uh, Peter is going back to David's writings and saying that the Holy Spirit spoke 
by the mouth of David. So again, they're going back and they can pick out anything in the Old Testament and say, the Holy Spirit said this or God said this. Now, I'm going to repeat what I said <clears throat> last week, just very quickly. And that is also within the New Testament, you get the New Testament writings referring to other New Testament writings as scripture. Second Peter 3.16, Paul does this in all his letters. There are some things in them hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So Paul is, so Peter is saying people twist Paul's writings and they twist the other scriptures. Other than what? Well, other than Paul's writings. And therefore this word scripture, this word scripture, which is of the Old Testament, used of the Old Testament 51 times, here it's also applied to Paul's writings. So what we have is, we have that growth of the canon, Ten Commandments, and then Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and the words of the prophets, the historical narratives, and the, and the, uh, uh, the wisdom literature. Then 435 BC, the Old Testament writings came to an end, and now we've got the New Testament writings coming along, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and all the epistles, and, uh, and then the book of Revelation. And right here in 2 Peter, Peter is taking all of Paul's writings and saying they are scripture. And then Paul, 1 Timothy 5.18, the scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. This is from the Old Testament, from Deuteronomy, but the laborer deserves his wages is from Luke 10.7. And so Paul is quoting Luke as being scripture as well. And Paul says, the things I'm writing to you, that's the book of 1 Corinthians, they are a command of the Lord. So we get claims that these things are God's words and claims that the whole Old Testament is God's words and then the New Testament also claiming for itself that different sections are God's words. Now, whenever I say this in a class, someone will usually say, but wait a minute, didn't Paul say in 1 Corinthians that he's writing some things that aren't from the Lord, that aren't God's words? And so we've got to look at 1 Corinthians 7 and see if that's true. Remember that where he says, I say not the Lord? What is, it, what is going on there? 1 Corinthians 7, 12. I want to look at, you've got a Bible, 1 Corinthians 7, 12. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother who has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. Is Paul saying that this isn't God's word? Is this a little section of, of the Bible that we should print in gray ink rather than black ink? Saying, or put parentheses around it or say, you know, what, what is going on here? I don't, think that's, I don't think that's what Paul means. I think what he is saying, we've got to go back and look at the context. Um, in verse 10, I don't have that on the screen, but if you look at verse 10, Paul says, to the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. When he says, I give this charge, not I but the Lord, 
Paul is reporting Jesus' earthly teachings. When Jesus was on earth, he said, what God has joined together, let man not separate. So he had earthly teachings of Jesus to refer to. And so when the Corinthians asked him a question about marriage and divorce, he said, well, here, I say, but he said, well, not really I, but the Lord. He said, Jesus said this while he was on earth. No. In verse 12, to the rest, I say, I, not the Lord. If any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, now he's saying, here's a situation that Jesus didn't talk about. When Jesus was on earth, he was talking about a Jewish person married to a Jewish person, a believer married to a believer. But now in the church at Corinth, some people have become Christians where the husband would become Christian and the wife wouldn't. Or the wife would become Christian and the husband wouldn't. Now what do we do? They were saying to Paul. And Paul said, you know what? Jesus didn't leave us any teaching on this. So now he's saying, well, I say, I, I, not the Lord. So he's following up on verse 10, where he said, verse 10 is Jesus' earthly teaching. Now here there's no earthly teaching of Jesus, but I'll give you my teaching. If any brother has a wife who's an unbeliever, she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. And now verse 25, he does something similar. Concerning the betrothed, people who were engaged, but we in the English Standard Version, we left the word betrothed to kind of signal that it was a different kind of institution than just being engaged here. You can, you can break off an engagement today. Betrothal in the time <clears throat> of the first century was a more formal legal thing, and, and it was it, it, you had to go through it basically almost a divorce process to break it off. You couldn't just say, hey, I break it. Well, anyway, concerning the betrothed, roughly the engaged people, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. So again, he's saying, I've got no earthly teaching of Jesus, but I give my teaching. And you know what? Now he's saying, one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. In other words, Paul is saying, on some topics, I have Jesus' teachings, and I'll pass them on to you. On other topics, I'll give my own teachings, and they're just as good. <laughs> he's saying, I think he's saying, if I have Jesus' teachings, I'll give them to you. If I have my own teachings, that's what I'll give you, because by the Lord's mercy, I'm trustworthy. And uh, he says, I think that I too have the Spirit of God. That's kind of understatement, a put down to the Corinthians. You people think the Spirit is working among you. Well, what about me? I think I have the Spirit of God. And later in 1 Corinthians 14, 37, he says, what I'm writing to you is a command of the Lord. So I don't think Paul is saying these parts are not Scripture. I think he's saying, he's talking about the source of the teaching, and some was just from his own judgment. Question on that? Does that make sense? Oh, okay. Now, oh, so point one was, the Bible claims to be the words of God. Thus says the Lord, the words of the Lord, the words of the Lord which he gave through such and such the prophet, many, many of those. The New Testament looks back. New Testament says it's all scripture. It's all God's word. You can quote even the narrative passages as saying God said it. And then the New Testament refers to other parts of the New Testament as scripture. So, or Paul can say what I'm writing to you is the command of the Lord. So now here you are. Imagine you're a non-Christian for a minute and somebody confronts you with this book and says, here's a book, and in hundreds of places, literally hundreds if you count all, thus says the Lord, hundreds of places, this book claims to be the very words of God. 
that the creator of heaven and earth has spoken these. Now, do you believe it? See, that's the question. I don't think there's any question that it claims this for itself. But now the question is, are we going to believe that claim? And how do people become convinced of that claim? I do not think that people, that anybody is ever going to be totally, thoroughly convinced that the Bible is God's word just by reading other books about the Bible, just by reading Josh McDowell's book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, or More Than a Carpenter, good books that answer all the historical objections and things like that. And there have been other books like that in history that say, hey, um, I'm an archaeologist, William Michael Ramsey was his famous archaeologist 100 years ago, and he set out in the Mediterranean world, he was going to take all these discoveries and disprove the book of Acts. And he spent years doing it, and he couldn't disprove anything, and he ended up leaving it all and, and saying, uh, you know, it's, it all proved to be accurate. And he wrote books on the voyages of St. Paul and how it was truthful. And there was another book by a lawyer, I think it's called Who Moved the Stone, and he was going to disprove the resurrection of Christ, and he started to make his case and investigate the evidence, and he couldn't disprove it. He ended up believing it all, and that's happened again and again. But I don't think reading those books is ultimately going to convince you. It's, it might be helpful sometimes, and I remember I had, I, I had a neighbor who was questioning the accuracy of the Bible, and I got him a Josh McDowell book at one point to answer specific questions. But we are convinced of the Bible's claims to be God's words ultimately as we read the Bible. Our ultimate conviction that the words of the Bible are God's words comes only when the Holy Spirit speaks in and through the words of the Bible. So Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I think what happens and what has happened to you individually at some point in your life is that you've begun to read, read this book and you've said, this is unlike any book I have ever read. This is my creator speaking to my heart. And that's what happens. And you know what happens? It doesn't happen to you again and again when you read the Bible. Uh, at some point during your day, you take some time, and all of a sudden, God speaks to your heart. And so, ultimately, people reading this, there's a power in them. And the Holy Spirit works in those words to convince us that these are the words of God. And we hear, we, hear, we hear God's voice speaking in and through the words of the Bible. So it's not other books that convince us. And it's not that you're sort of sitting at home one day and you don't, don't want to watch TV. You're just kind of tired of it. You're just kind of sitting quietly in your room. And all of a sudden, some whisper comes along, some angel saying, You mean that book over there? Yeah, that book. That's the word of God. It isn't like an angel whispering and telling you. See, that's something else trying to prove it to you. Uh, no, it's that as you read the words, the Holy Spirit works through the words. So, um, 1 Corinthians 2.13. Paul says we impart, or we impart this, that is, uh, things that God has shown him, in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, and then he says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So, 
on the part of just an ordinary non-Christian, there's some thinking that this is foolishness. This this doesn't make any. I don't I don't like this. It doesn't doesn't ring true to me. It doesn't make sense to me. And and so Paul recognizes unless the Holy Spirit works in people's hearts, they they reject this. What about other evidence? And should we ever use other evidence? Well, other evidence is useful, but it's not finally convincing. And here, I would, I would say, the Holy Spirit working through these words to convince us that they're God's words, um, there is in some sense a similarity to the Mormons claiming, when you read the Book of Mormon, there's a burning in the bosom, they, they say. That's their phrase. There's kind of a spirit. But now the question is, how do you distinguish and the problem with the Book of Mormon is there are probably dozens or hundreds of just historical contradictions and just falsehoods in it and inaccuracies in it. And there are books written on how to you know, witness to Mormons and talk to Mormons talking about the fact that those are, uh, that, that it's just inconsistent. And so, yes, I think there is a spiritual influence that people sense. Uh, internally when they read the Book of Mormon, but I don't think it's a positive spiritual influence. I think it's, a, I think it's a, ultimately a demonic spiritual influence that's influencing people to believe a lie rather than to believe the truth. So how do we distinguish? Well, there, I think, external evidence, historical evidence, and evidence about truthfulness and contradictions and historical accuracy, that all plays a part. And that could, you know, if there were hundreds of errors in the Bible, I would never say believe it. And so those other things are helpful. They could disprove a book, but I don't think they ultimately can prove a book. And here's the Westminster Confession of Faith. This is uh, 1647, uh, Puritans in London writing this. This is a famous, famous paragraph. I'm going to read it in whole. It's been quoted hundreds of times in literature about the, how people come to believe the Bible, and I agree with it. We may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church to an high and reverend esteem of the Holy Scripture and the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine and the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, the many other incomparable excellencies and the entire perfection thereof are arguments whereby it doth abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. So they're saying all those things are helpful. They're arguments. They're useful. That is, the testimony of the church throughout history has believed it. It talks about just heavenly things. And the doctrine is useful in life, and it's wonderful in its beauty, and it, the consent of all the parts. That means it doesn't have contradictions in it. It agrees. And it gives glory to God. It tells us how to be saved and many other incomparable excellencies. And I suppose they would include in that historically accurate, that it, it's borne out by archaeology and history. Those are arguments, and those are evidences that show it to be the word of God. And so those are helpful. Yet notwithstanding our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. So when I gave my neighbor this book 
Josh McDowell, evidence that demands a verdict, it was because he had said, wait a minute, didn't the Dead Sea Scrolls prove there were errors in the Bible? And I said, well, no, here's a section on the Dead Sea Scrolls in Josh McDowell's book. So I wanted to answer his specific question. But ultimately, my neighbor, this was several years ago, my neighbor I knew was not going to be convinced by Josh McDowell's book. He maybe had to have some objections answered, but ultimately he had to read it for himself and I knew then when he read it, it would speak to his heart and kind of bring him from saying, oh, it's a truthful book, it's a good book, it's a helpful book, to saying, this is the word of God. That's a big difference. So the words of scripture then are self-attesting. That is, they attest to themselves. They can't be proved to be God's word by appeal to any other higher authority. And what's happening here is, what time do we have to end? 9.25. Okay. So if I can end at 9.24 or something. I'll, I'll do it a little bit extra. Okay. Okay. So um, the Bible can't really be proved to be God's word ultimately by appeal to any other authority. Now, I was just saying archaeology and history and internal consistency those are all helpful, and I do think they're helpful, but I don't think they're the ultimate thing, because if ultimately we take the Bible and we say, oh, I wonder if it matches historical evidence, if that's our final standard of truth, then we just have this as our highest authority, not the Bible. You see what I'm saying? And and if, and if we just say, well, does it seem reasonable to me? Then you say, well, I'll submit to the Bible as long as it's reasonable. But what happens when there's something comes that you don't think is reasonable? Then you show what your highest authority is. It's your own reason. Or what if something comes, and there are things where, what about this Quirinius being governor of Syria in Luke 2? there's some conflicting historical evidence about that. Now, my answer is the evidence isn't all in, and there, there's, a, there's solutions to it. But if your highest standard is historical evidence, then you're saying, well, wait a minute, if there's any problem or incomplete evidence, then I probably won't believe it. Then your highest authority is not the Bible anymore. So ultimately, I think what we have to do is say, no, these might be helpful in showing that it's not contradictory, but ultimately, these can't be the highest a source of authority. Ultimately, we come to a point where we say, this is God's word. It's proved itself to be God's word to me. And then history and science and reason and all of this, I test to see if it's consistent with this because this is ultimately my highest authority. And so in my own life, in fact, that is, I, as far as I know my own heart, that is the attitude of heart that I have. This is my highest authority. And anything that comes along that, that appears to challenge that or disbelieve it, I say, well, I'm sorry, there's got to be something wrong here, and I'll try to figure out what, your problem, what, the, what the evidence is, how the evidence is wrong or the argument is wrong. But this is my highest authority in terms of moral right and wrong. It's not human reason. It's ultimately God's word in terms of the truthfulness of what the Bible tells us about heaven and the life to come and God and angels and Satan and demons and all this. 
people might say, well, I don't want to believe in hell. Well, you don't want to believe in hell. Your mind is not the final authority. The Bible teaches about hell, so it's the final authority. So ultimately then, uh, it becomes my highest authority. People say, well, this is a circular argument. Here. Why do you think the Bible is God's word? Well, it says it's God's word. Well, why do you believe it? Because it's God's word. <laughs> it says it's God's word. Why do you believe it? Because it's God's word. Well, why do you believe it's God's word? Because it says it's God's word. And that sounds like a circular argument to me. And But I, I in a sense, it is a kind of circular argument because all arguments for an ultimate authority have to basically say that an absolute authority has to appeal to that authority for proof. Uh, um, and so the question is, does it seem consistent with what we know about the world and ourselves? I mean, it could be just full of inconsistencies and historical inaccuracies and internal contradictions. And then we say, well, it could claim to be God's word, but it would be a pretty stupid person that would accept its claim on its own authority. But here, it bears itself out in many, many other ways. Now, this, point six, this. This refers to point A. All the words are God's words. This does not imply dictation from God as the sole means of communication. And here is just a common criticism that you get from liberals or people who are not uh, Christians and they want to criticize the Bible. They say, oh, you think the, that God dictated the whole Bible and he didn't even pay any attention to the personalities of the authors. And I say, well, no, no, I didn't say that. There's, it doesn't imply dictation from God. We've been arguing that all the words of the Bible are God's words, but there's a word of caution. When we say that they're God's words, we're talking about the result of the process of bringing into Scripture, Scripture into existence, not the process itself. I'm saying that the words are God's words, but I'm not saying that means that God dictated every one of them. So, the Bible said there, says there are many kinds of process by which words, by which God communicated what he wanted to be said. So now, let's see, I think I can, I can, I think I can get through this point and then quit. Um, yeah. How did these words get in the Bible? Well, um, in some cases, uh, there was something like dictation, where in the book of Revelation, the risen Jesus Christ appears to John, and he says, to the church at Laodicea, write. To the, to the church uh, at, uh, what are the other churches in? Uh, is it uh, Ephesus? Write. And so it's just dictation, and John writes it down. That is dictation, but there isn't very much like that. In other parts of the Bible, how things came to be in the Bible, well, the book of Hebrews says in many parts, in many ways, God spoke of old to our fathers by the prophets. How did God speak? Um, how did God speak so that things got in the Bible? Well, um, sometimes he spoke to Moses face to face, as a man does to his friend, with his friend, it says. Um, sometimes there was a dream or a vision. Daniel has these visions of wonderful things. Or 
or um, Pharaoh had a dream, okay, and then it was interpreted, and uh, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, and Daniel interpreted it. There's a vision. Sometimes it's just people meditating. David out in the field keeping sheep and meditating on God and then writing a psalm out of what's in his heart, isn't it? What else? What else? Um, dream, vision, meditation. Sometimes it's just observation of the events of history. The people of Israel went out to battle and they fought the Philistines and this is what happened and this is how many people were killed. And sometimes it's even observation of nature. So Solomon says, go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. Uh, where's the ant in Proverbs? Well, you remember that, right? Go to the ant. Because it doesn't have any chief or captain or leader, and it prepares its food in summer. And I was mentioning that little verse to one of my sons when he was younger about his homework, and said, you know, go to the ant, you sluggard, consider its ways and be wise. Don't be lazy about your homework. And uh, I can't remember, it was Oliver or Alexander. I said, you know, Dad, we just learned about that in school. Ants never sleep. So they are a great example of diligent work. So here is my question then, how did Solomon know to put the ants as an example of diligent work as words of the Bible? Well, this was what Solomon's research looked like. He was just watching ants for a long time. And after Solomon watched ants, then he wrote in the Bible, go to the end, consider its ways and be wise. And so that's a really different kind of research uh, from dreams and vision. But whatever the way was that these words came about, and for Paul it was his training as a rabbi and his knowledge of the Old Testament and that and his wisdom into what happened with Jesus. And for Luke it was talking to different eyewitnesses about what happened to Jesus. All these different ways, but the result was that the Holy Spirit guided it all, working through the personalities of the authors so that these are the very words of God. That's as far as we're going to get today. <laughs> Just a couple minutes for questions or comments, and then, and then we have to... Bob? Okay, Bob. Okay, anything else on this about how we are convinced that the Bible is the Word of God? Other evidence is helpful, but ultimately it's the Holy Spirit speaking through the words to our heart. Questions or... on that. Okay, I think I need to pause in the middle a little bit more and maybe get you talking. Let's, let's, let me just pray about this and then Bob has an announcement. Lord, we, we give you thanks. We thank you for this church. We thank you for this wonderful room. And Lord, we thank you for your word, that it claims to be your word. And then we hear it and we read it and, and it, it just rings true to our hearts. And and Lord, we know that it is your word speaking to us, and so we thank you for that. Uh, Lord, this week, if we're reading it, as we're reading it, if there's any doubt, Lord, enable us to submit to it and take it as our highest authority and, and believe and obey everything that speaks to us in it. Amen.